This is the word of the Lord. Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The year is 1558. By this time, the Protestant Reformation is well on its way. Sensing a need to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations, reformer John Calvin sent a group of French Huguenots to evangelize a French colony in Brazil. Upon arrival, these men were first welcomed, but then they were met with hostility because of their Protestant faith. They were forced into a ship and sent away back to the old world, risking their lives greatly. They left the ship, which had already departed, and returned ashore, rowing because they valued the gospel more than their lives. As soon as they landed on Guanabara Bay, today the city of Rio de Janeiro, where I grew up, I've seen Guanabara Bay hundreds of times, they were immediately arrested and forced to write down a confession of faith. These men had two options, recant the Protestant faith and live, or defend the Protestant faith, and die. They chose faithfulness and drafted what is known today as the Guanabara Confession of Faith, the first Protestant confession of faith written in the Americas, a thoroughly Protestant document where the authority and headship of Christ was affirmed and upheld against the authority of churches, traditions, and popes. Listen to what Article 16 of the Guanabara Confession of Faith says about the supremacy of Christ. We believe Jesus Christ is our only, that's the key word, only, intermediary, intercessor, and advocate from who we access the Father and that justified in His blood, we will be free of death. And by Him, we are already reconciled and we have whole victory against death. Less than, 20, less than 12 hours after the drafting of this confession of faith, Jean de Bordeaux, Matthew Vernieu, Pierre Bourdon, and André Lafont 
were hanged for believing that Christ alone is the head of the church. And in him alone, we find hope for salvation. Allegiance to Christ alone is worth living for. Allegiance to Christ alone is worth dying for. Because it is by placing our faith in Christ alone that we have hope in life and in death. Today we will consider the fourth of the solace of the Reformation, solus Christus, Christ alone. The five solas of the Reformation are the five pillar doctrines, the Reformed the reformers affirmed, and along with them, we affirm them as well. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. As Protestants, we affirm that Scripture alone teaches us that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved. And all this amounts to the glory of God alone. We may affirm the importance of Scripture. We may, we may affirm the importance of faith, Christ, grace, and the glory of God. But Christ would have us add the word alone to that. As we think of the supremacy of Christ, we turn today to Psalm 110. I wonder if it surprises you that the text chosen for Christ alone is an Old Testament text. Certainly the Old Testament speaks of Scripture alone. Certainly, we can find a text in the Old Testament for grace alone, for faith alone, and for the glory of God alone. But Christ alone? Friends, this entire book are the words of Christ and the words about Christ. Christ alone is proclaimed from the opening verse of Genesis to the last verse of Revelation, Christ is the goal of history. Christ is the only Savior of this world. Christ is the head of the church. The Bible tells us that it is all about Christ. Christ reigned from the beginning. He reigns today. And yet... His kingdom is being established among us today. So let's turn to our text today, and we're going to consider two things about Christ from Psalm 110. We're going to consider Christ, Jesus, the supreme king. And then we'll consider Jesus, the supreme priest. So let's consider first Jesus, the supreme king. David begins the psalm with 
a divine interaction. The Lord says to my Lord. Interesting about Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Some would say that the entire book of Hebrews is an exposition on Psalm 110. This speaks volumes about the trajectory of Scripture, doesn't it? How the New Testament writers so clearly saw Christ in all of Scriptures, but also Christ as the centerpiece of Scripture. Notice the two different words here being used for Lord. You have in your Bible the first word, Lord, perhaps in all caps. That's a way to indicate to us that the word here being used is the word Yahweh. This is God's covenantal name, His special name, used only towards those that are His. It refers here to the Father. Notice how the second term, Lord, is used here. Now, perhaps in your translation of the Bible, in your version of the Bible, only the first letter is capitalized. The word here is Adonai. A term of honor. A, a, a term that could be used for the Lord of a house, for the Lord of a business, or also to describe God. A more generic term for Lord. Here we have the Yahweh spoke to my Adonai. This is a divine dialogue between God the Father and God the Son in their plan of redemption. King David writes the psalm here about his Lord. The psalm is about one who is greater than King David. Jesus Christ, David's Lord and David's son, the shoot of David and the root of David. How do we know this psalm is about Christ? Oh, well, Jesus himself told us in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, shortly before Jesus takes on the cross, he has one final interaction with his enemies. He says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, uses the saying, God, right? God ultimately. David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? What Jesus is challenging the Pharisees to see here is that 
The fact that Jesus is the Christ makes him greater than David. The fact that Jesus is Adonai puts him in a special relationship with the Father. A relationship of redemption in which all things would be placed eventually under his feet. After this interaction, we learned that no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from the day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. What is the content of Psalm 110? Psalm 110 is a set of promises from God the Father to God the Son. Psalm 110 is a covenant. Psalm 110 is a plan. Psalm 110 is the plan that the Father devised so that the Son would be exalted. What do these promises entail? Verse 1 goes on to say, The Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Father honors the Son as King. This is the coronation of Christ. The right hand of the Father is a place of honor, <clears throat> a place of recognition, a symbolic invitation that highlights the equality between the Father and the Son in the Son's exaltation. We see here not only the resurrected Christ, but the exalted Christ. You know, I was talking to my dad a few weeks ago about this very thing. And dad said, the ascension of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, is one of the most overlooked doctrines in the Bible. And he's right. It is because Christ is exalted. It is because he ascended and sat at the right hand of the Father, that he was crowned as king. The sitting indicates that the king is at rest. The enemies of this king are not as powerful as this king. His victory is won. But there's tension here, isn't there? This is a victorious king. He's sitting... He's not in the battlefield. He's on his throne. And yet, his enemies are yet to be made his footstool. There, there is here what theologians call an already, not yet, tension. The victory is already won, but the enemies are not yet defeated. This makes me remember when I was a kid playing dominoes against my grandfather. Word for the wise, never play dominoes against your grandfather unless you really want to learn how to play dominoes. He will teach you. I remember playing, and I was always puzzled that my grandfather always knew what my next move would be. And when he came down to his last piece, my grandfather would put his last piece exactly where he knew his last piece was going, even though I still had the entire deck in my hands. 
He knew everything I had. He knew all my weapons. He knew all my tools. But in his wisdom, in his power, he had me beat. Before I even realized I was beat. Sure enough, I would only have one option. Pass or put one more piece on the other end. And my grandfather would beat me every time. That's the picture. Jesus is sitting because the victory is won. His enemies are like grandchildren who think they stand a chance against their all-powerful, domino-playing grandfather just to realize he had it all under control all along. The victory belonged to him from the beginning. Friends, this is what Jesus is doing. He's seated, not because the battle is finished, but because the battle is won. He's seated because the Father assures the Son of his imminent victory. The battle is not over, but the winner has already been declared. The God of the universe is creating a footstool for his Son, and this footstool is made up of his enemies. This is a picture of total submission. It was common in ancient times for a king to place his foot on the neck of the king he defeated. This is a picture of total dominance. This is a picture of victory. All who oppose Jesus will be made a footstool. In verse 2, we see that Jesus is king over all the earth. The Lord sent forth from Zion your mighty scepter. From Zion, the eternal city, Jesus will rule over all the earth. This is good news. Because the gospel has gone forth to the nations. Jesus came and brought hope to a people who had no hope. In verse 2, we also see that Jesus is king over his enemies. This is good news for us Christians because although in this world we will have troubles, we can take heart since Jesus has overcome this world. Although we see many opposing God's Son in the world today, that does not mean that He's not Lord. That does not mean He's not in control. Jesus is Lord in the midst of his enemies. Jesus is also king over those that are his. And, and this is the sweetest aspect here of the psalm. In verse 3, we see that the king's people will serve him. How? Gladly, mightily, dressed in holiness. Friends, we have a king. His name is Jesus. And it is for him we fight. It is him we serve. It is for him we live. It is after him that we govern our lives. So what does it mean for us that Jesus is the supreme king of all? Well, Jesus is king over the whole earth. He made it. It is his. We are mere stewards of this planet. We do not serve Mother Earth. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His great call in our lives is to fill this place with those who would worship Him, true image bearers. Jesus does not say, go into all the world and be a political activist. Jesus does not say, go into all the earth and be an environmentalist. Jesus does not say, go into all the earth and be an advocate for this cause or that cause. No, Jesus has appointed a transformation of this world to take place through the proclamation of the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. If Jesus is Lord of all the earth, he will cause his gospel to be successful. If Jesus is the king of all the earth, what is keeping you from going into all the earth and proclaiming his gospel to all peoples? We pray that Central Baptist Church will be a missionary sending church because we believe Jesus is king. We pray that Central Baptist Church will give itself completely to the proclamation of the gospel here and abroad because God is the sovereign God of the universe. Jesus is king over his people. The church has one head, Jesus Christ. It is from him that we get our mission. It is from him that we get our morality. It is him we seek to honor. The church is the bride of Christ. And as such, we do not look to the world in order to know how we should function, who we should serve. We do not, do not look into the, to the world in order to know what we should be like and what we should believe. We look to the word of Christ. We look to the whole counsel of God. We do not have worship services designed to entertain unbelievers. We're not concerned to be seeker friendly unless we're friendly to the one who is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We worship Christ. We do not think of practicality or pragmatism as we seek to govern ourselves. But we look to Christ and what he says about his church, which is an earthly embassy of the heavenly city, the Jerusalem from above. Jesus is Lord over his enemies. One of the greatest lies the devil tells the world is that there is a place of indifference before Jesus Christ. The devil wants you to believe that there are those who belong to God, those who belong to the devil, and those who are indifferent. No, that's not true. That is one of the most deceiving lies in the world. There is only room, there is no room for indifference before Christ. We are either redeemed by him or we are enemies of the cross. It's a binary world. 
There's only two categories of people. Those who believe in Christ and those who oppose Christ. The devil will tell you that while you are on the wall concerning the kingship of Christ over your life, you are all right. No, friend, the wall belongs to the devil. If you are considering Christ, you're actually rejecting Christ. Stop considering him and receive him. Turn the keys of your life over to him. The wall is a place of hostility to Christ, and those who are found on it will be condemned. No one who looks at Christ and says, good, moral, kind, wise, but stops short of Lord, will be saved. No one who sees the excellencies of Christ apart from his divinity belongs to Christ. Either Christ has lordship over your life and every aspect of your life, or you do not belong to Christ. I understand these are hard truths to be spoken. But friends, it is in love that we say this so that you will not believe the deception of Satan. So is Jesus ruling your life completely, every aspect of your life? Is he your master? Do you live to do his will If not, can I call you to consider not only Jesus as Lord, but also Jesus as priest? So let us consider now from verse 4, Jesus as priest. In verse 4, the psalm takes an unexpected turn. Jesus, the king, is also Jesus the priest. David says, the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest is someone who represents the people before God. Different from a prophet who represents God before the people. The sins of the people would be paid for in the old covenant through the sacrifices the priest would present. Kings had a civic function. Priests had a religious function. Now, at face value, verse 4 does not sound very astounding, but it is. An entire chapter in Hebrews is designed to develop verse 4 of Psalm 110. A king-priest? Is that possible? In 2 Chronicles 26, we learn about King Uzziah and his attempt to perform priestly functions. 
as a king. He is warned by Azariah, the priest, that he shouldn't do that. That was a very dangerous thing to do. Why? Because he did not come from the lineage of priests. Kings come from the tribe of Judah. But priests come from the tribe of Levi. King Uzziah, filled with pride and anger, goes on to present a sacrifice in the temple. The results are catastrophic. God strikes him with leprosy for the rest of his life. Not only was he not able to take on priestly functions, he, was, he wasn't even allowed to ever again come into the temple, into the presence of God, the king who is cut off from God. Interestingly enough, shortly after the death of King Uzziah, now not in the book of 2 Chronicles, but in the book of the prophet Isaiah, the prophet says this, In the year the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the trains of his robe filled the temple. He has a vision of the temple. Great vision of the Lord sitting on his throne. It is a temple vision, isn't it? A temple is a place for priests. But what does he see? Priests need altars. And yet, he sees a throne. A throne is a place for kings. Thrones belong in castles. Thrones belong, belong in palaces. Altars belong in temples. But there's something unique about this picture. The Lord is seated in His temple. And in His temple there is a throne. The message here is that no king, no king can ever sit on a throne in the temple except the Lord. The Lord alone can be a king and a priest. The Lord alone can rule over His people and offer sacrifices for His people. God intentionally left these two offices apart in the Old Covenant just so they could merge together in Christ. How is this possible? Well, verse 4 tells us, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, so rightly he is a king, but he's also a priest. Not after Levi, not from Aaron's order, but after the order of Melchizedek, a higher priestly order. But who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is somewhat of a mysterious figure in the Bible. He appears three times. The first time he appears is in Genesis 
or see. The second time he appears is in Psalm 110, right here. We're seeing it. The third time he appears is in the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 through 7. And that's it. He does not appear anywhere else. And yet, Jesus' entire priestly function rests on the order of Melchizedek. His name means King of Righteousness. Melach Sadak. He is the king of Salem, meaning the king of peace. Salem would eventually be inhabited by the Jebusites, and he would be known as Jerusalem, the eternal city. These are titles. These are facts that make us think of Christ, don't they? Christ is the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He rules from Jerusalem. When Melchizedek appeared in Genesis 14, Abram offered a tithe of bread and wine to him. He accepts that tithe and blesses Abram. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 argues that since Levi would eventually come from Abram, Melchizedek was a greater priest than Levi from a greater order because through Abram, Levi presented an offering to Melchizedek. It's a quite clever argument. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus brings back the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical order had become obsolete, unnecessary. Why? Hebrews tells us because the Levitical order never offered perfection. You see, what the Levitical, the Levitical order offered was the sacrifice for the sins that were committed. The Levitical order canceled by faith, sins that was already committed. Do you know what the Levitical order could never offer? Righteousness. The, the Levitical order would lead the faithful person back to a neutral place. But the sacrifice are offered in the order of Melchizedek offers something greater. Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, offers that which God requires. Not neutrality, but perfection. The similarities between Melchizedek and Christ are so great that some have claimed that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't believe that's the case. But certainly, this order is a completely different order than the Levitical order his order of priesthood is greater than the Levitical order because his order is eternal. Hebrews argue, we do not have a genealogy for Melchizedek, but we do have a genealogy for the Levites. The argument does not mean that Melchizedek was not born of a woman. It simply means that 
priests were not added to his order because of their genealogy. But there are only two in this order. Melchizedek and Christ. The Levitical order came to an end when Christ came. Because once the perfect comes, the imperfect fades. And friends, this is why it is so important that this king is also a priest. As king, Jesus will bring about justice to every wrong ever committed. The job of a king. As priest, Jesus has presented a sacrifice to forgive every wrongdoer who will trust in him. As a king, Jesus judges. As a priest, Jesus justifies. But there's something unique about Jesus. Something unique about the sacrifice that Jesus, the high priest, presents. Jesus is not a priest who merely presents sacrifices. Sacrifices. Jesus is a priest who presents himself as a sacrifice. Hebrews 7, 27, still talking about the Melchizedekian order. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And this, friends, is the heart of the Reformation doctrine of Solus Christi. This is at the heart of the gospel. When Jesus offers himself for us, he offers himself not as an addition to us. He does not add righteousness to our sinfulness. He does not add his works to our works, his efforts to our efforts his righteousness to our attempts of righteousness. When Jesus offers himself as a priest for us, he offers himself not as an addition, but as an exchange. His sins, our sins for his righteousness. Our rebellion for his obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. You see the exchange? So that in him we might become something we're not. Righteous. He receives our sin. We receive his righteousness. The exchange is complete. No sins linger. No need for works remains. Friends, maybe you're here today and you are feeling the great weight of your sin and you just want something to make you feel better. Perhaps if I go to church today, I won't feel as bad. Perhaps if I go to church today, God will look at me with a little bit more favor and he won't be so angry at my sin. Perhaps the question in your mind is, have I sinned beyond redemption? Have I reached the point of no return if christianity were about covering our sins with our righteousness the answer would be you're absolutely beyond redemption there is 
absolutely no hope for you. And this would be true of all of us. We would be doomed, condemned, without hope. We would have lost the fight for righteousness before it began. But Christianity is not about covering our sins with our righteousness. Christianity is about covering our sins with Christ. It is His obedience that is counted for us when we believe in Him. And His obedience is complete and perfect. It lacks nothing. Friends, do you understand that the gospel is not just the death of Christ for your sins? Do you understand that the gospel is also the life of Christ for your life? He alone can be the righteousness you claim. And if you believe Christ alone, you can rejoice. You can feel free. You can be glad. You can experience true forgiveness Complete forgiveness. And because Christ's sacrifice was presented once and for all, your sins are forgiven once and for all. Do you have Christ? Do you have His righteousness? Are you resting on the works that you think could perhaps lead you to righteousness? Have you received His life for yours? Are you living vicariously through Christ? Is Christ your only hope in life? And in that, friend, He can be your hope today. If you forsake your ways, if you forsake any hope that you have to justify yourself before God, you can come to Him in faith. Christ alone, by faith alone. In the Martin Luther movie of 1953, there's an interesting interac interaction between Luther and another priest that goes like this. The priest asks Luther, Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things, and dismiss them as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Luther answers, Christ, man only need Jesus Christ. May that be true of our faith today. Would you pray with me? Father, we are such a needy people. Our sins, there are so many. Our unrighteousness is so great. It would take all eternity for us to pay for them, and even that would not be enough. Father, you're such a generous God. You see us in our great need for redemption, and you give the only thing that could ever accomplish the redemption of our soul. Christ his righteousness. Oh, Father, how we want to sing and say and 
cry out and shout from the rooftops. It is Christ alone that is my righteousness. Him alone I serve. Him alone is my hope. He is my king. He is my priest. He rules over my life. He died for me. He offers his life as an exchange for mine. We praise you because you have given us Christ. And if we have Christ, we need nothing else. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.